All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to First Impressions Podcast. We are the podcast where we talk about our love for the author Jane Austen while giving a big middle finger to all the haters out there. I'm Maggie and I'm kind of running the show today because of some terrible uh, technical difficulties that both Kristen and I have been experiencing. But we think we worked it out and we're here for you and we are ready to continue our Pride and Prejudice discussion. So as always, I'm joined by Kristen. Hello. Who is your Austin expert? And I'm just here for the laughs. No, that's so, true. <laughs> as you may recall, on our last episode, we finally, after much teasing, we finally got to the big kahuna. We were discussing, yes, the one, the only Pride and Prejudice. And we made it through, well, we talked about other things other than just going through the timeline of the book, but we did make it through basically where Bingley leaves town. I believe. And so we're going to pick up from there. And I know Kristen has some things that she's very excited to speak about. So I'm going to turn it over to her. Well, thank you, Maggie. What a lovely introduction. Excellent. So yes, so I was making notes and reading for this podcast and I had the biggest epiphany, which other people have already had, I'm sure of it. But I have to say, I've been isolating myself from other commentaries on Pride and Prejudice because as much as I'm interested in them and people have been sending me interesting podcasts, blah, blah, I really do not want rip to rip off anybody else's idea and present it as though it's my own. So this came out of my head, but is probably not new. Pride and Prejudice is a novel about gossip. And it's a, it's a novel where gossip is almost a character in and of itself. It's the opinion of the neighborhood. The neighborhood is a character. I mean, when the book starts, it, uh, it's, you know, it's a truth universally acknowledged. And then it starts talking about it's in the opinion of the neighborhood, the general opinion. And then the way we end the, um, I think it's the first chapter, is when we're talking about Mrs. Bennett and we say, oh, you know, her the business of her life is to get her daughters married. It's solace is visiting and news. And in fact, the first lines of the book are even gossip, right? When Mrs. Bennett is, is coming to Mr. Bennett and saying, wonderful news, let Netherfield Park is let it last. Do you not want to know who has taken it? So she has the juiciest gossip. And so once I realized that, and I started looking at all of the plot points in the novel, so many of them are precipitated by gossip. And so I'm enjoying my um, revelation. We're recording early today and I woke up before the alarm and I was just lying in bed thinking of all of the gossip that's in Pride and Prejudice and just just so excited to talk about this. You're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up before the alarm, but mostly because I had to go to the bathroom. Oh, <laughs> well, that'll do it. Because that whole bottle of wine I drank last night. <laughs> Uh, well, so, so when you emailed me and were telling me about that, Kristen, I was just, I was um, re-listening to the audiobook and I was just at the part where Lizzie is thinking about, she's read the letter that Darcy wrote her and it changes her opinion actually, not only of him, but also of Bingley. And this is something that isn't really addressed in the miniseries, but in the book, there's actually a lot of negative neighborhood feeling towards Bingley after he leaves, where I believe that she, she met, she's like uh, monologues to herself about how he was thought of as having, you know, used Jane very poorly and yes. how he was seen as discarding her. Yes. And I thought that was interesting. I think there's a throwaway one or two lines in the miniseries where, you know, Mrs. Bennett is off on her thing. And she mentions that, 
uh, like he's used my daughter ill or something like that. But I think when he, once he leaves, the gossip is that, uh, can you believe he was such a jerk to Jane? Yeah, well, and that's one of the accusations that Elizabeth ultimately will wind up leveling at Darcy, right? Like you've exposed her to the derision of the world for disappointed hopes and um, him to whatever for, for uh, his caprice and what, you know, exposed him for his caprice and exposed them both, involving them both in misery of the acutest kind or whatever. Um, because being gossiped about actually really sucks. And Elizabeth has, um, and Jane, but especially Elizabeth, because she's more alive to the fact that people are gossiping about her. Elizabeth is a realist. She knows people are gossiping about her all the time. Right. Jane is above it, right? She has a delicacy of mind where she's not going to worry about it. She's not going to assume the worst of people by assuming they're gossiping about her when in her everyday life, reality should have informed her as it informs Elizabeth that, yeah, everybody is gossiping about you. And I think what's so amazing about Lizzie and so inspiring is that she has risen above it. She has like learned to laugh about the fact that her family is ridiculous. Right. It doesn't quite bother her anymore. But what I, the thing that made me start thinking about this gossip thing is how mad she gets when Jane mentions that Lady Lucas has come by to condole. And Elizabeth yeah. is like, it, you know, it's insufferable. She should have just stayed away. Assistance is impossible. You now you're know. talking about when Lydia has run off. Yeah. Right. And the assistance is impossible, condolence insufferable. I think that's from the movie and not necessarily mm -hmm. the book. But that's when Lizzie gets mad. And she's like, she should just stay away. Why, you know, and it's because um, Elizabeth knows now she's in love with Darcy. And I think she's more awake to the fact that gossip, she just feels the shame and the pain of it twice as much so so here's what here's what i think about that i think that when it was just what we would say quote idle gossip you know there's nothing to do here so people are just going to talk about what we're all doing like mr bennett says you know we make sport of our neighbors and they make sport of us in turn or they laugh at us in turn um there were no stakes like yeah. oh okay people are talking about me because i wore that dress to that party <laughs> until until bingley and darcy there were no stakes for them with gossip. Like, what did it matter? Right. The whole family was ridiculous. It didn't affect anything. But with Lydia running off, all of a sudden, shit just got real. There yeah. are consequences. And so this is, you know, when Mr. Bennett calls, we're getting towards the end of the book here, but when Mr. Bennett calls in Lizzie and talks about or no, I'm sorry, when Lydia's about to go off to Brighton and Lizzie tries to tell Mr. convince Mr. Bennett to tell her not to go. And she's like, if you already knew the harm, and he's like, oh, oh what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Has she scared off any of your pers perspective suitors? And I think she says, I speak of general rather than specific, but now there's specific consequences to when yes. people talk about them and, and their reputation. Can't. Yeah, yeah. And and it's starting to really bother her. She can't be philosophical about it like she was before, because as you said, it used to not really matter. And and her neighbors were ridiculous too. Like the Lucases are ridiculous too. And they're all ridiculous together. Well, but I think that's part someone... of the problem too. I mean, we discussed last episode how Lady Lucas and Mrs. Bennett are in this kind of frenemy. Yeah. Um, so when she comes over and tries to be nice, it's so fake that oh, just yeah. kind of maddening, right? Like, <laughs> I know why you're really here. Yeah, and in the meantime, the uh, neighborhood is also gossiping about Lydia and 
have her having run away. And what's so funny about is their their general opinion towards Wickham has of course changed as well. And then everybody is like, I knew it, right? Yeah, so Austin oh, I didn't trust him. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> But um, there's one line where, and and gossip is so cruel, and this it really illustrates it. Where there's one line where it says it would have been better for conversation if Lydia had come upon the town and become a prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, yeah. So not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when exactly right, like when Binley leaves, which has just happened in our um, chronological narrative of this crazy podcast, where we jump around and talk about everything. Uh, is that, um, you know, everybody's gossiping about them and Jane is in in pain. So Bailey leaves and Jane is basically painted as like the jilted lover, right? He's painted as someone who just like used her and discarded. I mean, obviously there was no physical um, thing that happened, but used her and discarded her that she was just, you know, while he was on his summer fling. (laughs) Yeah, and even uh, Mr. Bennett references it in front of like I believe well in the movie it's in front of Jane but I don't know if Jane is there in the book but he's like your sister has been crossed in love I find it gives her such a distinction amongst all her companions I think he's just talking to Lizzie there yeah Yeah. Um, and he says you should be next yeah yeah like isn't this fun everybody's talking about this and he's sort of laughing about if you paint it if you paint it in the context of the novel being about gossip like you were saying it just kind of makes everyone in the Bennett household look worse at this point. I mean, poor Jane is being basically tortured. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, and I just remembered something I wanted to talk about, which kind of dovetails into this. I really, this past reread, I really appreciated Jane's character. And I feel like she kind of gets shit on a lot, just like Fanny Price does. Um, but Jane is suffering through almost like an Eleanor type of thing from Sense and Sensibility, where her heart is broken, right? And But everyone's talking about it constantly in front of her. And she can't say anything. She can't really do anything. She just has to sit there and take it. And only Lizzie really sees how it's bothering her. And it just made my heart ache. I, I think that's an, a very apt uh, description. Well, she suffers, but just yeah. like Eleanor, you know, she can't show it. I almost feel like Lizzie and Jane are the sisters that Eleanor and Marianne could be if Marianne wasn't so self-absorbed. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I love this. I love these connections. Um, I wonder if when Austin was writing Jane, if she saw, if she thought of Eleanor and thought of Marianne because he, she would have finished Sense and Sensibility first. So having a lot of empathy for that kind of pain, which is so sad really, because she must've gone through it as well. With her, when her engagement ended. More than once. So poor Jane, you know, if it was us now and this happened, like say you dated someone and you thought you were going to get married and then it just, he like takes a job somewhere else. Right. And so leaves and you know, everyone's talking about you. And what if your mom just kept going on and on and on? And oh, if, it was you, if it was me, I would be like, can we not? Yeah, but of course you can't. You have to respect yeah. your elders. She, there's nothing that she could really do. And their father actually comes off, if you look at it, like I was saying, through the, in the context of the novel being about gossip, I think it makes Mr. Bennett look even worse. Oh, he just looks like such a jerk. Well, first of all, he doesn't care about her emotions at all. No. Um, he laughs at them. He laughs at everything. Yeah. And Bayard, and I had a, Bayard and I had a big discussion the other day because he, he's read the book, but he read it probably 20 years ago. Um, 
and we had kind of a not a fight because let's be real we're not going to fight about Austin uh I hope but we had definitely like a long discussion about how he was kind of a Mr. Bennett apologist oh (laughs) and I was like no you need to understand that he's actually horrible so I was looking up all of these passages from the book where the narrator kind of just explains how bad he is like neglect can be just as can be just as abusive I think um and maybe that's too strong a word but my point is that his never checking or disciplining his children and ignoring the family is just as bad as Mrs. Bennett in my mind and could have led to the unhappiness of his two eldest daughters and his favorite daughter um and you know when when Elizabeth says there are few people whom I really love and even fewer of whom I think well that's pretty much obviously who she's talking about and we can like him I mean we can think that his outlook on life is funny and like enjoy his um quips and everything but i completely agree that he's totally negligent and he he is a great character in terms of as the reader you enjoy mr bennett right yeah if he was a real person he would not be a good father or even necessary i I mean i hesitate to say he's not a good person because i don't think he would run someone over with his carriage yeah (laughs) right uh but he's not a good father or a good member of their family um And I think that the problem is, is that, I mean, it's not a problem, but the actor who plays him in the miniseries, and we won't talk about Donald Sutherland because I know you have strong feelings, but the the actor who plays him in the miniseries is so, he's very charismatic. Oh my gosh, Benjamin Wittrow. And he, he does show this depth of feeling, especially for Elizabeth, that I don't think is present in Mr. Bennett in the book. Yes, he gives it. I, I completely agree. I think we have um, a, a more fleshed out and living idea of Mr. Bennett than the book would even give us. I think we even have more sympathy to, and liking for him than the book would even, you know, give us because of Benjamin Wittrow's performance. Thank you for bringing that up because we just lost him. Um, oh, that's right. He passed away just a couple of months ago, right? Yeah, which and he did a great job. And there's a funny like anecdote about the actor himself. Um, starting his first day of filming and they had given him these big mutton chops and he he was like he had to go to the costume director and be like i can't work i can't work with these act through the mutton chops <laughs> he was like panicking he's like i can't deal with it um, and he did an amazing job but, but um you know even in when she gets when elizabeth gets the letter from darcy um and he says, you know, the impropriety demonstrated by all of your family, even occasionally by your father. It, um, yeah, it doesn't really fit. I always, that line always didn't really ring true to me in the context of the miniseries. Cause I guess, and they flash to that scene where he's telling Mary, like, why don't you not play anymore? But he even yeah. does it in a polite way. So yeah. I was just, oh, when I was younger, I would always be like, what's wrong with Mr. Bennett? Oh, he's yeah. Like, not that and, bad. But in the book, he's it, much worse. Elizabeth loves him. Elizabeth has a knee jerk where she's like, you know, he has abilities which uh, Mr. Darcy need not disdain and respectability, which he will probably never reach, um, which actually is a huge stretch and not true because Mr. Darcy really does have that respectability. But, you know, Elizabeth, with her nettled feelings, rushes to her father's corner. I mean, she loves him despite his, um, you know, expose allowing them to expose themselves to gossip which is a real um i mean this whole word impropriety 
And for that to be such a big deal for Darcy to not want Bingley to marry Jane and to not want to marry Elizabeth himself because of the impropriety of her family. I mean, being exposed to gossip back in the day was like the worst thing. And it was something to be guarded so carefully against. And when you think about Darcy himself attempting to avoid gossip, when he says to Elizabeth, it has been my study to... um, avoid those weaknesses which expose a strong understanding to ridicule or whatever um he is also terrified of bringing gossip to his door well and and for him the stakes are even higher right because and oh this was something else that i was trying to think of earlier when lizzie is at pemberley and a lot of people if you just watch the miniseries you know there's this kind of knee jerk well she just thinks she loves him when she sees like how great his house is <laughs> but if you that passage of the book there's a lot going on in her mind and one of the things going on is that she really starts to realize what being a darcy means in terms of how many people he's responsible for the stakes for him are even higher with gossip because it could bring down not only their family, but that whole area. A lot of because they right. are the they are the landowners. They are the landowners for the entire village, right? And a lot rests on their being looked up to and respected, right? I mean, I mean maybe it is sort of a feudalistic kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like you don't I, want to I show weakness. I, you know, we mentioned in the last episode that I had just uh, watched Death Comes to Pemberley, and that is actually they they hit that really hard. In, um, oh, in that uh, in that adaptation, because you know the whole like any scandal, right, could bring down the whole family. Uh, which, but you know, Darcy's such a hypocrite, though, because well, maybe not a hip- maybe he's hypocritical in that he doesn't understand the effect his actions have. But by acting the way he does in public, it actually causes more gossip. Yeah, it does. Because, yeah. but then the gossip is, well, he's such an asshole, you know, and well, that's not really good gossip to have either. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, he's avoided ridicule, but actually he hasn't because people are making fun of him for being such a jerk and yeah. he doesn't fully understand. He, he tries to avoid gossip, but he doesn't necessarily fully understand it. He also thinks of himself as better than it, right? bigger than it. And it's beneath his notice. It's, it's, um, uh, my pride and reserve, and I, I didn't want to expose my actions, you know, to the world. And, you know, um, he does sort of allow, I mean, that's his just, you know, he tells Mr. Gardner, I'm going to pay for Mr. Wickham having run away f- with Lydia because I, you know, I was too proud and reserved to let people know that Wickham was a bad guy. Uh, he is taking a little bit too much on himself, but actually that's also kind of true. Yeah. Um, and some things are important to, <laughs> to maybe warn other people about. Um, it's, but but it's, I wanted to say, okay, go ahead. Mrs. Mrs. Reynolds, the housekeeper at Pemberley, um, there's even some gossip there, right? When Elizabeth arrives at Pemberley and she's like, whoa, Darcy. And then through the gossip of his housekeeper, learn some good things about him mm-hmm. and so much of what this care so much of what these characters know about each other is actually transmitted secondhand and taking a, a taking the opinion of the world and evaluating it sometimes it can provide you useful information um, it just doesn't go as deep as the individual's thoughts and feelings behind their 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 surface um, presentation what I found very interesting um, after the discussion with Mrs. Reynolds, though, is Lizzie and Mrs. Gardner 
they, how do I say, they do not give as much weight to her assessment until they see it themselves. And they both full on say it's because she's a servant. Yeah. Did you, and, have you noticed that? Yeah. Like, oh, well, well, Lizzie's first like, oh, you know, if his, if his servants think well of him, you know, that's very, that's something that's really strongly in his favor. But there's also this sense of, and I think Mrs. Gardner comes out and says it like, well, yeah, but are we really going to trust what a servant tells us? It's um, It was like, very classist. And it's funny because this whole book is about class, more like middle class versus upper class. But there's this derision for the servant class as well in our main characters, which I thought was interesting. Well, it's, it's actually Mr. Gardner. I don't think Mrs. Gardner gets into that at all but it's mr gardner oh, one of like, them i knew it was one of them and then lizzie thinks it to herself too at one point and then then she they, then they become sensible right that the opinion of a servant of the right. family who's seen them as the child they become sensible of the value of that intelligence and one thing that other also struck me about the gardeners and uh the darcy's and how the gardeners think and feel about the Darcy's is when Mrs. Gardner first meets Mr. Wickham and he says, Oh, this horrible thing happened. Mr. Darcy was so horrible to me. And she tries to think back to her childhood in Lambton and anything she heard about Darcy that would prove that he was a jerk. And she finally thinks she remembers that she had heard Mr. Fitzwilliam Darcy, Darcy spoken of as a most ill-tempered or a proud and ill-tempered young boy or something. Mm. His so, dad, or no, when the, he was a boy. Okay, interesting. I don't remember that part. Because I Mr. Dicey, everybody is like, oh, Mr. Darcy is the best guy in the whole world. And that's sort of never challenged. But um, she's yeah. trying to think of uh, what she can th- come up with about the current Mr. Darcy, the young right. Mr. Darcy. But then there is also, once Lizzie's opinion starts to change, and they ask around town in Lambton, which I find hilarious, because they're just <laughs> going to like walk up to people. It's like in a... Um, like in a video game where you just wander around. And talk. <laughs> uh, but they're like, other than just coming off as kind of proud and not coming to visit much, people don't really have any opinion. And then I think she thinks, you know, which is only is normal because why would they like stroll around this little village? Right. Like why would they have any reason to come visit if they're the landlord? Right. Um, yeah. So there's all right. this, I don't know. This, this book is so interesting because the the narrator is an omniscient third person narrator but we are in the mind of lizzie through most of it and she i never thought this until this recent read but she's basically an unreliable narrator it's but because awesome. the, the narrator's a third person who knows what knows everything everyone's backstory but every time you just don't know i mean it's like life now like you don't know who to trust you never know how to trust your sources right what, I completely agree with that. And there is one um, time where the narrator steps in to tell you that Elizabeth is sort of, you know, deceiving herself. And that it stood out to me just because it is so unusual because you don't usually get this. But um, it's talking about Mr. Wickham pursuing Miss King. Mm-hmm. And it says Elizabeth, you know, learns about this. And it says perhaps she's less clear or perhaps she's being less clear-sighted about Mr. Wickham and Miss King than she was in Charlotte's case. And it's just one sentence. It's like, Elizabeth, perhaps less clear-sighted in in this case than in Charlotte's, 
was like, oh yeah, he has to chase money. So that's um, one unusual little reminder that, um, you know, you, we have been getting, it sort of makes us feel a false sense of security that the narrator is going to tell us when Elizabeth is not being um, um, observant. Because a lot of things that the narrator doesn't tell us, a lot of things like um, Lizzie missing the impropriety of Wickham disclosing what happened with him and Darcy yeah. on first meeting her. Um, and so when all that does come out, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, um, and so I would completely agree that she's an unreliable narrator. And you, that's why it's so powerful when we start to, our feelings change along with hers. Do you think that there's also a lot, and this just occurred to me, there's a huge double standard there for Lizzie, where when Charlotte basically just goes after what she sees as her best chance, Lizzie's super judgy, which oh, yeah. not, not unfairly, but right. with Wickham, it's like, well, that's the way it goes. Like, he's got to marry money. Yeah. So the dude, the guy, it's okay. But for the, her friend, who's a woman, it's like, oh, I think that might be more, rather than being like kind of a misogyny thing, I think it's more that she knows Charlotte's character so well or thinks oh, she yeah. does. And yeah. it's just sad to her that her like, friend would be unhappy for I, an, an economic reasons. I expected more from you, Charlotte. I thought you were a more enlightened being than someone who would just sort of chase money. Yeah. Right? And while she is, and that is super like not to downgrade the super judgy. Um, oh yeah. But I think but a lot of it is that is she so knows awful. her friend will not have, will not live happily ever after with Mr. Collins because who could, right? She knows right. that her friend will right. like, have to deal with this jerk for the rest of her life. It is sad. It is sad, but it also does say like she's lost respect for Charlotte yeah, because yeah. she is choosing it with her eyes open. I don't think their friendship ever really recovers. Oh no, it, she goes for more for the sake of what had been than for what was. Yeah. Um, and then of course, when she goes, she's made, forming her own impressions of whether or not they're happy. She's the eyes of the the more informed neighborhood as well. Um, and Charlotte knows that. I mean, I, when, when Elizabeth comes to visit Charlotte, Charlotte knows she's being judged and, um, she's happy to show Elizabeth the house and like take the girls over the house and be like, look how happy I am. But it does say whenever Mr. Collins said something about which his wife might reasonably be ashamed, which was not unseldom, Elizabeth's eyes involuntarily turned to Charlotte and once or twice she thinks she can disdain a faint blush. Yeah. Right. But I mean, most I of the time, I Charlotte that, I think that we can all relate to that or kind of like if a friend decides, you know, to, to leave, like your relationship is never like, say you moved when you were a kid and like, oh, we'll stay in touch, but you know, your relationship is yeah. never going to, yeah. or when you stop living with your college roommate and you go your separate ways, like you're never going to have. No. Or like when Kristen married Kevin and I was like, oh God, I've lost so much respect for you. <laughs> That's a he joke. You didn't have the beard That's then. a joke. That's true. The beard did raise him in my estimation. The first time you met Kevin, you were like, oh, he's such a goober. He is a goober, but that, that didn't, <laughs> it didn't mean that in a negative way. I meant that like he's a total goober and perfect for you. Oh, nice. Oh, I don't think you. there was any. No, I'm digging myself deeper. My joke has backfired horribly. Uh, <laughs> I think from the very first time I met Kevin, there was never any question as to whether the two of you were not 
well suited for one another. A match made in heaven. I think that's a good way to say it. I mean, he is a goober, but you love to laugh at silly things. <laughs> silly things. Yeah. Right? So that's pretty much how we get on. Yeah. So what better person for you than someone who will just always make sure that you have something to laugh at? Yeah. I didn't have to find a husband who had to be learned to, had to learn to be laughed at as uh, Darcy does. I found one who is pretty much dying to be laughed at. (laughs) This goes back. That is a deep dive that goes back to one of, to like our very first episode. Cause I was basically like, you know, these days ain't nobody got time for Mr. Darcy because we can't, I can't teach a guy, you know, I can't teach you how to be an adult. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. or how to learn to be laughed or how to lighten up like I'm sorry by the time although I'm much older than uh (laughs) Lizzie and Darcy are Um, if you fall in love for certain qualities I mean and I think one of the things about the Charlotte Collins marriage is that it is just so grotesque yeah whereas um, nice (laughs) thanks but uh with Elizabeth and Mr. Wickham and Miss King she doesn't really know much about her and even mrs gardner she asks elizabeth what what can you tell me about miss king what sort of girl is she so i know how to feel about him pursuing her after she's inherited all this money it's indelicate and lizzie sort of takes her to task and she's like at what point is someone not mercenary at what point is someone um can fall in love with the person with the right amount of money that they also care about you know like people are you, you can have one or the other but you can rarely have both yeah. So here's Lizzie arguing um, for, you know, an idea of a Charlotte Collins marriage or chasing after a woman with money. Um, well, this you know, is, but- I mean, she'll defend Charlotte. It's like if some, you make fun of your sister, your, my, I make fun of my brother all the time, but if someone else makes fun of my brother, oh, hell no. You know, like <laughs> I'm gonna, also, I always felt bad for Miss King. I felt a certain, I don't know, connection with her because of the way she is, oh, you know, Lydia in the movie, I can't remember who says it in the book, but pale freckled thing. And I'm like, hey, (laughs) as someone who is also pale and freckled, that's what I was, that's what I thought you were going to say. I'm not going to say that I'm not, although I guess we've embraced the word nasty, right? Nasty women. Um, I think that they're rude to Miss King and it's just because they're jealous, the green eyed monster. Well, yeah, you know, and um, that's when Elizabeth does come back from Kent and sees Lydia and Lydia says that she's shocked at herself. She's like, that's the sentiment I was harboring in my breast and I fancied it liberal. I fancied fancied it like um, when she means liberal, she means uh, generous toward Wickham being, you know, understanding of the decisions he was making when he's really like, you know, morally compromising herself. I mean, it also sort of comes down. This is after she comes back from Kent and after he, after he, um, after she goes down, her uncle takes her away and she is safe. Um, Right. And Lydia's like, who could have cared about such a nasty little freckled thing? And Elizabeth was like, oh my God, I was giving him a pass on chasing after a woman because she had money uh, and I shouldn't have been doing this. I was less clear-sighted than I should have been. I think that Lizzie reading Darcy's letter and her reaction to it is basically the huge turning point in the book. Oh yeah. Because it, open it's a it opens her eyes to how she has misjudged so many people and situations 
that she's seen. And so the book kind of like, it's a huge turning point. It's like we go around this sharp corner and then after that, everything is different for her and the way she sees things and thinks about things. And I love that. I think it's really great. When she, but she thinks she has his number. By the time she's in Kent and hanging out with him all the time, she is so secure and certain that she just totally has his number, has understood him completely because she has spent so much time with him and she's gotten kind of an intimacy with his ways. And um, then when she does get the letter, it's a, it's a bomb, a huge bomb. You dropped a bomb on me, that kind of thing. Where she's <laughs> like, <laughs> she's like. She has to read it over and over again. She memorizes it. She studies every sentence and her feelings towards the author were at times widely different. She's going through such a dramatic change in her feelings towards him that it's sort of bouncing from one, one perspective to the other perspective, from the old Lizzie to the new Lizzie. And she's sort of realizing that, hey, maybe I was being a little prejudiced. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, and she starts thinking of Darcy and Wickham and trying to compare them. And, and she realizes that Wickham, yeah, he has these gentle manners. But when she tries to think of some virtue that would atone for what, you know, uh, Wickham had previously done or proof that he's a good guy, she can only think of what his social powers have gained him in the mess. Whereas when it comes to Mr. Darcy, all of a sudden she has all these reasons why he's a good guy. I mean, when she searches her memory... Mr. Bingley had long ago asserted Darcy's blamelessness in the whole affair. Um, he, she's never seen anything that's proved him irreligious or immoral. Um, among his own connections, he's esteemed and valued, and he even loves his sister, and that proves that he's capable of some amiable feeling, how he's always praising and talking about his affection for his sister. And so, you know, in the text, it actually says she grew absolutely ashamed of herself. If neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think without feeling she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, and absurd. And actually, Maggie, that line has stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I always think blind, partial, prejudiced, and absurd, those four words together. When we get to this uh, part of the book, I'm almost like waiting for it, like a laugh mm -hmm. line in a Golden Girls episode. Yeah. And memorized it. And you know what the laugh the line is going to be even before it comes. And you still laugh anyway. Well, I don't laugh, but, you know, I, I anticipate that. Mm -hmm. So she says, how despicably I have acted. I, who have prided myself on my discernment, who have valued myself on my abilities, who have often disdained the generous candor of my sister and gratified my vanity in useless or blamable mistrust. How humiliating is this discovery, yet how just a humiliation. Had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind. But vanity, not love, has been my folly. Pleased with the preference of one and offended by the neglect of the other on the very beginning of our acquaintance, I have courted, courted prepossession and ignorance and driven reason away where either were concerned. Till this moment, I never knew myself. I like that line. Yes. And I think that the, the letter comes right almost at the dead center of the book. Yes. And, you know, I know that as I was reading on Project Gutenberg and the slider on the webpage was halfway down the page. Ah. <laughs> I was reading the entire text in one page, uh, which is great about the Internet. You can just like pull up any book. Um, and so I, think that, I, th I love that because I think that goes to show. Like, that's not a coincidence, you know, that's Austin purposefully making that a clear 
kind of turning point in the story. And we turn on a dime. I mean, we turn within mm-hmm. a couple of pages, you know, and it's, um, it's just incredible the, 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 the skill and the revelation. And honestly, even though I know what's going to happen, I often feel the same thing as Elizabeth. I often have built up this sort of dislike of Darcy and, mm-hmm. and sort of, um, you know, a uh, good feeling towards Wickham along with Elizabeth and, and who can say why that is, but I guess I'm just so invested as her in her, well, we're in her head so much more. We're in her head. Yeah. We're in her head. That's why, well, I'm just, I'm just, I guess I'm just such a sucker because I'm always surprised at the end of Emma too, like we talked about. (laughs) Let me ask ask you a question. So the letter and then Lizzie's revelation at the end of it um, is a big, it's like you were saying, it's a big pivot in the story. And Lizzie does have this moment of epiphany. Um, When we don't see that with Darcy, we know that he changes by the end of the novel as well. And he tells her that he recognizes now all these things in himself that were wrong. Um, But when do you think that happens for him? Because we don't see it like we see hers. It's, it's true. Um, You know, the uh, reactions that he has in the proposal, obviously he's been shaken to his core as well. Mm -hmm. And I think being shaken to your core is the seed of, personal change. And, and when so, she shows up at Pemberley, he's very different. Yes. So I because feel like he had processed in that time. Yeah. Only because he's had so much time and he's so in love, right? So yeah. he, she's always on his mind. She's ir- he's irresistibly desiring her, cursing himself for what could have been and reviewing all of his actions through her point of view. It's I so mean, romantic. For the first time, he's actually gotten a taste of her point of view, and it's completely different than what he had even ever imagined. And so trying to comprehend what has happened to him, this personal catastrophe, has forced him to try to understand, well, why doesn't she want me? And from that, it's just a short step to trying to see things from her eyes, reviewing what she has said. And all of a sudden, when I mean, I don't know about you, but I constantly try to see my actions through the eyes of other people. I should I'm probably in, do that more. No, because <laughs> I'm an insecure person. So I want everybody yeah. to like me all the time. So every interaction I have, I have to review it and I have to be like, okay, do they still like me? Is there a reason they won't like me in the future? Did I do a faux pas? Did I put my foot in my mouth? And often after I hang out with somebody, I, I think back to something I said and like get really embarrassed about it. And then if I bring it up to them later and apologize, they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, mean so I, do, I do tend to do that too. But usually, it's after I've already done something like clearly stupid, oh, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, "Oh God, why did I say that or do that?" You know, and I should I think, think more about that before I do the thing. I think I, I, Austin was no stranger to the kind of love that preys upon you, mm-hmm. and that's shown again and again in Eleanor's story and Jane's story even in Elizabeth's story where she's constantly getting these nagging thoughts. I wish I had never told this to Mr. Darcy. Darcy clearly is also experiencing the kind of love that preys upon you. And that can radically change your worldview just by forcing you to see things through the eyes of your beloved. Yeah. Um, think in concern for their feelings. You know, he loves her and she's been deeply upset. She's come out and said, Hey, you're a jerking. You hurt my feelings. And, 
and just to know that, you know, if he truly loves her, which he does, you know, he'll have generate, generated natural concern there as well. And so I think it's so funny that you brought up when they meet at Pemberley, um, not to talk over you if you were going to make another comment about that. But no. I was just reading, just reading when they go into Pemberley and um, meet each other again. And before she sees him, she's in uh, his house and the housekeeper um, takes her to, to view his portrait. Um, and she's hearing all of this, all of this praise from Mrs. Reynolds, the housekeeper. And she thinks to herself, what praise is more valuable than the praise of an intelligent servant? As a brother, a landlord, a master, she considered how many people's happiness were in his guardianship. How much of pleasure or pain was it in his power to, to bestow? How much good or evil must be done by him? Uh, every idea that had been brought forward by the housekeeper was favorable to his character. And as she stood before the canvas on which he was represented and fixed his eyes upon herself, she thought of his regard with a deeper sentiment of gratitude than it had ever raised before. She remembered its warmth and softened its impropriety of expression. <laughs> and so I wrote to myself as a note, in a sense, she falls in love with him right before they meet again. Yeah. And that makes her, the tumult of her mind all the greater when he comes from around the stables and surprises the hell out of everybody. And, uh, and they have this, this very awkward conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, then all this stuff, this stuff happens. I mean, the confusion of her mind in that scene where he's also confused, you know, his, his accent, his color is heightened and his accent has none of its normal sedateness. I mean, they're both thrown into getting a, a, a flurry, I guess you would say, a mental, like mentally thrown off balance. Well, I was just thinking about um, what you just said about how after the proposal, he was thinking about all of his actions and how people viewed them. And we had said earlier that, you know, Darcy didn't really care what people talked about his personality because that was like just kind of beneath that gossip is beneath him right it's not the type of gossip that would bring down Pemberley or anything like that right. so it's just like whatever I don't care right. but then I think after when he starts thinking about it and he starts when she basically voices what a lot of people thought of him I think for the first time it does affect him and then again he has stakes now right the stakes aren't he just like stakes. this could destroy the family it's just his personal it's personal it's stakes. stakes yeah Yep, absolutely. I mean, from his very cool first assessment or when they're both at Never the um, Netherfield together and Jane has been sick and they're staying there and he thinks to him, himself, he was glad that she was leaving that day because were it not for the inferiority of her connections, he really felt, felt like he would have been in some danger. Yeah, danger. Back then in that Darcy's mind, matrimony was still something to be lured into yeah and then she could have entrapped him into oh god I was in danger of getting married and and it turns from him kind of feeling this like inclination he's almost laughing at himself about to this like all-consuming like I will change for you I need this kind of and that's the romance right I mean yes, that I was just gonna say that's the thing like so the part that happens off screen off page if you will is what you were describing is kind of the part that I find super romantic when he 
is kind of just now ashamed of his behavior and kind of aching to put it right and thinking of her and what, and then when he sees her at Pemberley, it's all about, it's kind of like a best behavior thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. And so, um, and they have little touches that they've added to the mini series, which are not in the book. Um, I think it's before that, but you know, when he's fencing and he's like, yeah. I will defeat uh-huh. this. Uh-huh. Or when and he holds her hand to help her into the carriage. Oh, or when she's playing the piano and he just smiles. Like, I've watched oh, that the, part. The look. The little the look. smile, right? Yeah. Like those mm-hmm. little things are what I watch over and over because I like to see him suffer. <laughs> You're so right. suffer, but like him give some kind of outward show that he actually loves her. You're so right. And as women, uh, we're all susceptible to that some more than others, but uh, it is incredibly romantic to think you could make a man change for you to have that much power over a man. And I think part of it is the patriarchy, right? Like they're perceived as so much more powerful, and especially in that scenario of Lizzie and Darcy. I mean, he has all the power and to bring him under your, put him under your little finger, you know, like. Yeah, I see what you're uh, saying, but I, I really like though, that it's not like um they're married and she has to gently you know show him how to be a good person like he right, comes right. to this on his own yes just as she comes to this realization on her own through his response to her and the letter even though his is happening off page it's he's changing for her and he's changing because of her but he's come to it through himself Oh, the, yes, he has come to it through him himself and his his motivation. For, and I, I completely agree. Like um, this, uh, it's, a, it's a common theme, right? Like a man changes for you. Like mm-hmm. his love is so powerful for you. Which is the look, trap. It's a, <laughs> right. it's a lie that right. a lot of, he'll stop beating me after, you know, not to take oh, it to a super dark place, but a I, lot of women think they can be, yeah. quote, change. And Lizzie didn't, quote, change Darcy. He changed himself to become worthy and she changed herself yes 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 to meet yes him. he this changed I told you. i told you in the beginning this is the thing i love about this book they come into the middle they, they start on grow. opposite ends and they both change and mature and meet in the middle yes they do they both grow and 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 her evolution too makes it also romantic i mean mm-hmm. you see her creating this desire this need you know in herself as she ruminates which is exactly what he's going through as well um no, to your point, there's this, uh, not to, but this is a digression. There's a Simpsons episode. So Kevin being a guy is always quoting the Simpsons. And there's this one episode where Lisa gets romantically involved with Nelson Munts. Oh, dear God. That, char- that character. Yeah. Who's like, oh, character. Yeah. And he's just this crude, rude. And so I remember one- that one. I remember that one. I watched that. And, that was one I'm still watching. And, um, you know, she's having this trouble with Nelson. She's trying to change him and he doesn't, you know, that's, he's resistant to that, obviously. And so she's in the car with Marge and, and Marge says, you know, Lisa, uh, a lot of women will tell you that you just can't change a man to suit you. And then you think it's going to be some pearl of wisdom. And Marge goes, those women are quitters. want to believe (laughs) that this change did happen but like you said it's not it's not from her she didn't point her finger at him and say you changed that's the only thing like honey we talked about this you need to be less fanatical yeah Yeah. it comes to a genuine realization and even a horror 
looking back and saying, oh, wait, who am I? Yeah. And, and, and realizing who, who, how she's seen him and being like, oh my God, I'm a monster. And he even says like, um, God knows what you must have thought of me, my behavior. I cannot think about it with abhorrence. You know, he's, it's this incredible revolution where he started to finally be able to see himself as others see him, which is such an important skill. And it's sort of why, you know, people talk about Darcy as though, uh, you know, some people go so far as to say he's autistic is because he really does not have empathy for these yeah. other people until he starts to think about them genuinely because of what Elizabeth has said. Well, this is kind of, this is the, this is the trick that Pride and Prejudice plays on you, if I may, because when you are at the beginning, obviously you think Darcy is like really hot, but he's hot <laughs> in that jerk, Bronte brooding, self-absorbed in his own pain, hero kind of way. Yes. You know what I mean? And, like, and who among Heathcliff us has been uh, Rochester, right? That yes. brooding, but he's a jerk, but he's still a jerk. But you're like, damn, he's hot as hell. We and all have had questions. Yeah, that. right? Yeah. yeah. But then by the time you get to the end of the book and he's actually become a real person and not to like shit on the other authors or if you like gothic romance, go for it. But um, when you get to the end, he's not just the like tall, dark, and handsome nope. jerk. He has become now person. a full person who is self-realized and understands how to be a good person. And you still love him, right? A person you can hang out with and take to a party and hang out, you know, like and be a normal living person with and not some kind of gothic romance forever, this tragic figure. It's almost um, like, it's almost like you're reading Pride and Prejudice and it's this light, comedic, frothy satire of society and all that stuff and marriage but then it's like someone dropped a Bronte <laughs> hero into yeah. it in the beginning yeah but then he like figures it out what story he's in yeah <laughs> yeah he's and like oh yeah. right this is not a tragedy I'm not going to like die in a burning building or wander on the moors you know oh it's like God. oh right <laughs> I'm oh actually it's so true. I don't mean to talk over you, but I'm so excited about your idea, Maggie, and I love it so much because this is what Austin is about. It is everyday people in their living rooms and their lives, and it's it's such a perfect analogy to say gothic hero dropped into real life and and becomes a normal person, a person mm -hmm. that Austin could respect, a person that really could live in our sphere. I mean, Austin is all about our real sphere, but but. She also acknowledges that real passion exists within our sphere amongst all the crazy nonsense that's going around us every day, amongst all the Mr. Collinses and Mrs. Bennetts of the world. Some people are able to form this true passion. It exists, but it doesn't exist on the moors or, as you said, yeah, like right. locked in the attic. You know, um, and God, I, I, Mr. Rochester is such a freaking weenie. You know, oh snap! Like I can't stand the guy, and that's yeah. why I can't be a Bronte person, but I am an Austin person, and I, well, I know I there are a lot of people who are both. I just picture him. the The adaptation that I'm, I always think of the movie is the one that oh god, it has what's her name, who is in Minority Report. But the Mister Rochester is the same actor who he has the crazy Welsh name we've talked about because he was in the older film version of snapping my finger persuasion he was captain wentworth what is his name it's like saying yeah yeah him he plays mr rochester in the version of jane Eyre. i always think about i've never seen that one are you for real 
Okay, I'm going to. I'm performing my usual Maggie duty and going to IMD, IMDb because it had what's their name like Samantha something. I'm sure our know. readers are all. I don't know actors. Our, readers, our listeners are all yelling at their I know <laughs> devices now. Like God, Maggie, get it together. I know. Well, you look it up because I will say that it must be that um, Sharon. Sharon, I, I learned how to say it for our previous podcast, and now I've forgotten. Uh, Sheeran Hines. There's so many versions of. We'll Jim. go. Yeah, we'll we'll just go with Sheeran Hines because I know you love Ed Sheeran. Um, he must just be really gifted at playing assholes that women can't help loving, right. because if he played Wentworth and and he did very successfully, being a total um, doofus, um, <laughs> being a total like uh, you know um, jerk, you know, just want mm-hmm. we, we talked. I won't relitigate persuasion with you. And then to be Rochester and basically just emotionally torture Jane Eyre uh, and, you know, have this romance right in front of her, which is exactly what happens in Jane Eyre as well. Yeah. So that, I mean, not to go off on a Bronte side note, but that has got to be one of the most horrifying plot twists to ever occur where you're literally at the altar. Oh yeah. <laughs> and like, oh wait, not only. Okay. So this is a 1997 TV movie version. I, can't, I guess it was on like Masterpiece Theater or something. And it's got, um, what's her name? Where is she? Why is she not like the immediate top build cast? Oh God, Samantha Morton! Oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. It's very, it's a, it's a very good version. I mean, I'm not the biggest Jane Eyre fan because I think it's, um, it's just like almost torture porn. The horrible things yes. that happen to this character. Yes. Um, and then it's like, oh, the happy ending is you get to take care of your broken, blind <laughs> husband. Congratulations. <laughs> heroin you win and St. James <laughs> dies uh, I don't know there's no real lesson to be learned I don't want to I don't want to upset our Jane Eyre fans I um yeah but 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 exactly and if you I don't I've never seen this adaptation I probably have read about it because you should watch it it's very good I've mentioned this before but um there's this self-published author who wrote a book uh Pride and Prejudice and Popcorn and she reviews not only all of the Jane Austen movie adaptations out there, but she also has reviewed the Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights adaptations that oh, she get her hands on. And I read, I read the reviews because they're actually quite funny and insightful. With, I, I've only ever read the books. I've never seen any of the adaptations. That's not true. I saw one Jane Eyre adaptation that came out. You haven't seen The Wuthering Heights with Ray Fiennes? Girl. Oh, get out of I hated that book with such a fiery passion. Oh, I know, but he's very cute as Heathcliff. Well, he's also <laughs> Lord Voldemort, so. But he hasn't, this is years Your before. Your mileage may evolve. vary on that one. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, will, nothing will stop. Look, if I can withstand a crush on Ray Fiennes through Schindler's List, like Voldemort <laughs> is not going to crack that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh Lord. As a Jewish person, if I can watch Schindler's List and still be like, damn, Ray Fiennes looks really hot as this like, of a concentration camp i think that him playing voldemort isn't gonna really you know oh lord (laughs) oh my god okay so basically we've gone off the rails per use my point what i was thinking when i made that comment about how it's like someone took a a, like a bronte hero and dropped him in the book i was thinking of the tuesday next books by jasper ford which I don't know if you've read, but it basically imagines an alternate history, England, where 
there are literary police because characters in books live in like a real world. There's a book world. Sweet. And they have to protect the integrity of the novels oh. and make sure that nobody messes with them. Um, and the first book is called The Air Affair and it takes place in Jane Eyre. Um, but sometimes you will get, the characters will wander into other books. Oh, right. It's kind of like a subplot that happens in this series of books. And so it just gave me kind of a laugh to picture like <laughs> Mr. Rochester wandering into Pride and Prejudice and how he oh, would boy. be like, what is happening? And Lizzie taking him to task. Right, um, right. Be pretty satisfying to see. Yeah. I wonder if that was part of her intent a little, you know, she had written Northanger Abbey. Yes. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I that's mean, an interesting thought. I mean, I think I'm taking it a little too far with Darcy know. in the beginning being that kind of that dark character, but it just, it made me kind of think about how he is very much in the vein of your bad boy, rich jerk that we're still attracted to. I think she was basically, I think she would probably be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just making, taking this view of like the pompous, like aristocrat who is so full of himself and thinks everyone's beneath him kind of deal. Or not even aristocrat, like wealthy land, wealthy landed gentry type. But it's fun to think about it. Yeah. Like how would Pride and Prejudice be different if we took a different, like a, a character from a Gothic story and put him in Darcy's place? Oh man, take, um, Ambrosio from the monk. Oh Lord. <laughs> no, then we have to go off on a 300 page tangent about some like walk he took. <laughs> the adventures he had with highway robbers. I don't know. <laughs> so we're really off the rails now, Kristen. We got to bring it back. We got to bring it back. Cause I think we're almost at the end of our regular discussion. Our regularly scheduled program. Yeah. So where so we talked about the turning point, and we talked about how we sort of fall in love with her, him, mm-hmm. uh, right as she does when we see him at Pemberley. All this cool stuff happens, and I have to really briefly talk about one of my favorite lines in the whole book. Well, please, that is okay. I have it memorized. So, um, yeah. So it's when uh, Darcy. Um, is coming is bringing Georgiana to meet Elizabeth it's the next day after they uh, talk about you know oh can I introduce you to my sister Georgiana and so the next day she's at the inn they roll up Darcy's like hey girl you know like I've got my sister and Mr. Bingley here can I bring them up and she is so anxious because she's like more than usually um, anxious to please, she naturally assumed that every power of pleasing would fail her. And I feel like we've all been there, you know, like mm-hmm. all of a sudden we really have to make a good impression and we just feel like the most boring people in the world. And what are we going to say? And why would anybody like me? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just me. I don't know, but no, I, I definitely in more yeah. formal situations. That's how I feel. Cause I can rock a room at a party, Yeah, but if it's like a formal interview or like something with the higher ups, you know, that's stuff or like Bay's parents. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you just have this dread of putting your foot in your mouth, yep. but, um, and it says, you know, where she was most afraid to fail, she was actually most likely to succeed because Georgiana was willing Bingley was eager and Darcy determined to be pleased. And <laughs> that kind of love, I mean, when everybody is prepossessed in your favor, yeah. um, 
And uh, I, I just, I just love that. And I think about that sometimes, I mean, it really does make a difference as to whether you have an audience who's prepossessed in your favor or who you think is, has already decided that they do not like you. Um, I just, between everything that happens, everything that happens between when she gets to Pemberley and sees him again to when the Lydia thing goes down, it just makes me have this like big grin the whole time. Because uh, you know what's coming. Well, it's just that he's so nice now and she's like a little bit unsure, but she's falling in love with him now. Yeah, and that's when it gets really fun. Yeah. And you can like you can participate in her love and and it really it really nags at her. I mean, like we were talking to bring it full circle, we were talking at the beginning of this podcast about gossip and how um she knows when people are gossiping about her and it's sort of at first their stakes are low, but with him all of a sudden when he re when she reads the letter the knowledge of the gossip and what it's done to her family starts to hurt and then <laughs> in sort of a uh coming full circle thing she starts to fret about what he thinks about her mm -hmm. yeah yeah with after the whole lydia situation i wish i had never spoken a word of this to mr darcy um and uh yeah, and it's it goes back to this idea of total misunderstanding. Mrs. Gardner and Mr. Gardner also misunderstand the whole Lizzie Darcy situation. And that's very interesting because they're sort of observing them together. And then with Mrs. Gardner and, and Elizabeth, they sort of do this little dance where Mrs. Gardner drops all these hints and Lizzie gets really pissed off. <laughs> well, like, Mrs. Gardner is a sharp cookie. Yes, yeah, she is. <laughs> that's, my that's, a, that's definitely a trademark. <laughs> she is one sharp cookie. She, knows, she has her number. Yeah. She has her number with Wickham. Yeah. And she has her number with Darcy. Yep. And, um, you know, people not fully understanding other people's characters. Um, I also have a note here about Georgiana being totally misunderstood. Oh, yeah. And Lizzie even thinks that, doesn't she? She's like, I can see how yeah. people would see her reluctance to speak and shyness as being stuck up and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it became apparent really fast that she was only exceedingly shy. Yeah. And that Elizabeth is perspicacious like that. I mean, she she can immediately see that. She's better at understanding characters than most. Well, and especially now that she understands. Especially now own. after the scales have fallen from her eyes or whatever. Now that she understands her own character. Yes, her own character better and Darcy's character better and has sort of come to the world with a new commitment not to be prejudiced towards people unduly. Um, and but you know you can see that sort of saves her from a dalliance with Wickham, whereas Lydia has absolutely no ability to see through anyone's character like whatsoever. And she's like, "Of course I'll run away with you, Wickham. I have a little crush on you, and why not throw my life away for that ridiculous?" I would say that Lydia's view of others is just completely shrouded by her own caring about herself. Oh, yeah. And, and it says in the book, she's like, it, it says she never attended to anyone for more than half a minute and, and never attended to Mary at all. Yeah. <laughs> Mary. Oh, Mary. Oh, Mary. Um, uh, who's also a good, good comedy. Also gets overlooked as good comedy, but she is also um, a funny, uh, funny grace note of comedy that we haven't really talked about. Yeah. But so, Kristen, what do you say we pick up 
next time with the Lydia Wickham. Yeah, we can do that. Running away. We can definitely talk about it. And then we'll just see where the conversation takes us. Because, I mean, we're all over the place. Like, you know, we don't stick to the timeline. It's fine. Now, people basically listen to us to hear what outrageous thing you're going to say. Me? Like, 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 what, um, you know, Nazis did you have crushes on? Oh, stop it. Oh, God. (laughs) This is not a thing. This is, okay, let me just tell the world this is not a thing. I just really like Ray Fiennes as an actor. Okay, please don't judge me. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I, I was just po- me poking a little fun. Yeah, no. I know. I gotcha. Um, Girl, he was you also know, in I think that you're movie, hilarious. Um, the Duchess. Did you see that movie? I don't he's, think so. He's in that one, but he plays the bad guy, and he's like not attractive. Like, like he man, does play a good bad guy. So, indeed. So, well, hey, um, and remember, connections, connections. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon here. In The English Patient, Ray Fiennes was the tragic hero and Colin Firth was the asshole husband. Oh, true. So just and remember Colin that. Was also that asshole husband in um, Shakespeare in Love, which yeah. is so weird. Have you I seen think that? that I read that after people lost their mind over the miniseries, Pride and Prejudice miniseries, he purposefully took roles that were not like, quote, good guys. Oh, because he didn't want to be like the romantic historical drama lead forever. Oh, didn't want to do those costume dramas forever. Hey, that's well, a good gig, man. Well, I guess well, he would still do. I mean, those it. are still those. Both the English Patient and Shakespeare in Love are both, you know, technically costume dramas because they're yes, not modern day. But he is not a good guy in them. Yes, that is true. Uh, that, uh, nor is he really 100% a good guy in Pride and Prejudice. That's true. Like I said in the beginning, yeah. he's totally a jerk. Yeah. He can be. <laughs> he kind of proved he can play an asshole with the best of them there um but i see what you're saying so i think that's really interesting you don't want to get typecast as an actor right i totally get yeah. that and now he's in those ridiculous kingsman movies which i refuse to even see i haven't seen the second one yet but i probably will because he's in it the first one is one of those things where i watch it and i'm like this is extremely problematic in its depiction of women and people of color but i still really enjoy it you know what i mean yeah oh yeah like, it's super violent. It has a lot of things you don't think I would like. It's super violent. The bad guys are all people of color, which is disturbing. There's really only one female character who's not a bad guy. And yet, I own it. So I don't know what's going on with that. <laughs> Probably because Colin Firth looks really dapper in those bespoke suits. Uh, yes. Well, he makes a good Kingsman. I mean, he played the king. And that's uh, true. You know. With Lizzie! <gasps> She oh yeah, that that's right. It's I that's freaked right. out in the theater when they were in that one scene together. I always freak out when she's in anything, and normally I don't. Normally it takes me a second, and Kevin's got to elbow me and be like, "It's Lizzie Bennet." Like you know, like, oh my god, uh, Contagion is that the one where she saves humanity? Oh uh, yeah, I'm not watching Contagion. Like, good for her. Okay, let me tell you one. Okay, if you have if you care anything about spoilers, don't listen to what I'm going to say. It does not surprise me that Gwyneth Paltrow would be the person to destroy the world. <laughs> Two, Lizzie totally saves humanity because she tests the antivirus on herself. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Nice. And she found it. She fixed it. She found the way to defeat the flu that's killing everyone. So, boom, there you go. She's just such a good person, that Lizzie. Yeah. That uh, actress who plays that fake characters. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Kristen, let's move into our wrap-up portion where we then talk for another 20 minutes. Yeah, okay. Um, oh, I have a piece of old business. Okay. 
before we go down the lane. Um, this old business dates to about um, an hour ago when I said that Bayard read Pride and Prejudice 20 years ago. He has made it very clear to me since that time that it was much more recent than that, Maggie. And <laughs> it was at least within the last five years. So <laughs> I'm setting the record straight. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. Um, I'm sure he appreciates that. We won't like make fun of him for being a, a troglodyte. And, you know, from the Jane game, he actually did pretty well. So I guess I he did great. I was yeah. impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we definitely heard from people who are like, Hey, well done, Bay. Oh yeah. Um, really? Okay. Well, let's go to the wheat sheet. Cause I want to hear about what people thought about that episode. Yes. Well, I don't know that there are that many comments about it. Um, let me, a lot of them were comments on the Facebook page. Oh, that's fine. I thought it was cute. Uh, it was, it was cute. Um, you know, like we had to, we kind of had to do it. I mean, I, I came and I was totally mentally unprepared to talk about Pride and Prejudice, even though I love talking about it. It just wasn't in the cards and we need to I, be at our, we need to be at our best mentally to tackle Pride and Prejudice. We do. Um, and especially now that I've gone back to school, um, like, for example, I spent this entire weekend writing two papers. And, oh, my gosh, you Kristen. Know, I had you are a like, superwoman. I had to crack open a bottle of wine before this and just speed read and try to refresh my memory. And, um, I th you know, I think it went well, but um, it does require a shifting of gears. So I also apologize that, you know, our, our releases have gotten a little farther spaced out. Um, it, which is totally my fault and trying to stay on top of it. So I appreciate your patience with me as well. Um, so some things that have come through, um, we haven't posted this on the Facebook page yet. I don't think it came in on Monday, but uh, Yuziani sent a really interesting article teaching Jane Austen with the New York Times, a celebration of her work. And cool. so we're, gonna, we're checking that out. We're going to post that on the Facebook page. We also got an absolutely lovely message from uh, Colleen, who I forgot to ask her where she's from, but uh, who- Probably Toronto. They, she said, yeah, most likely, or, or rural uh, uh, South Australia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, I mean, disproportionately we hear from <laughs> so I, um So she said, the Jane game sounded great, and she needed an online version to play with her Jane Austen friends who are scattered around the world. Oh, that's such a good idea. I think that they could have made the questions harder. Um, but well, uh, you have a level of knowledge that I think your average person probably doesn't. Yeah, um, that's true. So you wouldn't want to make it too hard. Uh, that's true. There just needs to be, I need to make a game for only the elite oh, Austin fans in the world. <laughs> oh my God. No, well, I will I picked, fail. I picked up a book of Austin trivia from uh, Trotton House when we were there. Mm -hmm. And the first question, I, 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 the first question was, where is, um, you know, Sir Thomas from in Mansfield Park? And I was like, what the Oh, heck? wow. And I couldn't answer it. And then it's from uh, Northampton. Northampton, oh. or um, hmm. am I making this up? Northamptonshire. Okay, sounds good to me. Yeah, but it says that in the first line. It's like, oh. blah, 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 from not Northampton. And so I was like, see, this is the kind of trivia game I need to keep me on my toes about every right. tiny bit of trivia. Okay, you never know when someone might just pop out of a cash cab and ask you a Jane Austen trivia question. 
that you have uh, to answer. The, the cash cab, but for Jane Austen. Yes. That would be cool. Yeah. You um, could also combine it with the karaoke cab, which I will run, oh and then you God. can run the Jane Austen cash cab. Karaoke cab. I think about what I'm going to sing the next time I do karaoke. I think about it all the time. Whenever a good song comes on the radio, and I'm alone, I try to sing along to it and evaluate how I'm doing and decide whether it's on the karaoke roster. Okay, well, I think that you better decide before I come see you in April, because guess what we're going to do? Yes. You know, Freddie Mercury, although he has an amazing voice that can never be equaled, is actually really easy to sing. Yeah. Um, he's in his range. His range is very doable. And also, Susan Boyle was, like, beloved for her rendition of I Dreamed a Dream. But actually, that's also really to sing, really easy to sing. It's in a really easy range. And um, I always sing it to Kevin, and I make it sound damn good. So. Aww, that's so romantic. No, he, <laughs> no, he's not really. he tolerates it. <laughs> and then he'll sing Rage Against the Machine back at you. Oh, yeah, that was totally fun. romantic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but Colleen made a great point. Why don't we sign off with an Austin quote to leave everybody, you know, hey, thanks for listening, blah, blah, blah here. Um, and there's one that is so good that I am going to use it um, in a few seconds if I can't think of any other wheat sheaf items that I have overlooked. And I don't think of any, I've really overlooked any. Uh, Yuziani was also the person who sent us the, um, the thing with the face swap where it was this Australian like bachelor. Oh, that was hysterical. Sophie Monk. That was really well done too. Yeah, I was really, really, really impressed. Like they did a really nice job with the um, cutting and pasting of the faces. Yeah, the face swapping. Yeah. Thing. They did. They did. Um, yeah. And it's just really, really uh, funny and cute. I don't know. I've never seen the Australian version of the bachelorette, but obviously um, it was awesome. Anything else? Thank you to all of our listeners, I guess. Well, we just had Thanksgiving here in the United States, so I guess we should, you know, it would be appropriate to also thank all of our listeners. It's really amazing. Yes, we are thankful you for you, listeners. Download and listen. Yes, and, and thank you for everyone who likes and comments on the Facebook page. And this little community we've built has really meant a lot to me over the past years of year past year of trials and tribulations so thanks and i again. think that i can speak for everyone when i say that Kristen, do not give yourself a hard time you are working full-time going to school full-time full time, working on this podcast we like we don't we pay for it ourselves Kristen does all the editing which is often a lot because there's even if you think we go into tangents in what you hear <laughs> you should hear the parts we edit out yeah it's <laughs> and so I definitely, and on behalf of all our listeners, we really appreciate all the hard work. Yeah. And I don't think anyone will complain if it's just like a couple weeks more between episodes. It's fine. We're all busy people. We get yeah, it. Yeah, we are. Well, thank you for understanding. And so uh, any other old business? Just for Jane Austen quote to see us out. All right. Fe uh, fellow listeners, fellow Janeites, we're going to have to say goodbye because we have delighted you long enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great quote. All right. Let me figure out how to end this. <laughs>